Well, it is a privilege to get to be with you this morning. As Cameron said, it's God-ordained that we happen to be in the right place at the right time for this to happen. My wife and I only come back every couple of years. But it's a privilege for a couple of reasons. One is that really I'm a PCA baby. And I was very nearly, literally a PCA baby. My father was at seminary at RTS in Jackson when my mother was pregnant with me. She went into labor. She got my two-year-old sister, put her in the wagon, pulled her up the hill to the tennis courts where my dad was playing tennis. Said, Tom, Tom, I think I'm in labor. So my father, with all his wisdom as a seminary student, soon to graduate, said, okay, honey, let me finish this set and we'll go to the hospital. <laughs> we just made it in time, but I was very nearly uh, born at RTS Seminary in Jackson. Uh, I went to college at Georgia Tech. While I was there, I got involved in Christ Church down in Buckhead. I was involved through my time in college. Then after being overseas for a couple of years, I came back, joined staff with crew, and worked for four years as the college minister at Christ Church. And my job was to connect the church to the campus and the campus to the church. And I got to work on both sides. I was on staff with crew on campus. I was staff at the church. We were able to bring those two things together. It was a really big privilege and joy in my life to be, be doing that. Um, and uh, actually, another connection to the church... I, for eight years, I was here in Atlanta working on staff with crew. I got the privilege of being at Kennesaw State for, for five years working with the ministry there. So I feel like there's so many connections here, even including the fact that everybody's named Josh here. That's really, really helpful to make me feel at home. Uh, the other reason I see this as a privilege is I love the book of Galatians. God has used the book of Galatians in more than one time in my life in a really powerful way. I remember being in college and... A student, one of my peers, came back from a summer living overseas in Croatia, actually a neighboring country uh, to where I live now in Bosnia. And they had studied Tim Keller's Galatians study that summer. And he was given a report on the book of Galatians. And my peer giving this report rocked my world, revealed so many places in my heart that I didn't see were there. I realized that every time I would read the Bible or pray, I was doing it for one of two reasons. So that God would love me more, or so that God would not be angry at me. And I realized that that's not what God wanted for me. And so, I don't encourage you to do this. I didn't read the Bible for about two months, because I refused to do it out of the wrong motivation. And whenever I wanted to, I would grab the book of Galatians and I would read it. After about two months, God began to work in my heart a new motivation to read the Bible. Not just to earn favor from God or to avoid his displeasure, but to know him to grow in him, and to understand this thing that he's done for me. So I love the book of Galatians, so it's a privilege to get to talk about it today. And I think one of the battles we're going to face this morning as we look at this text is the battle of familiarity. Because I bet many of you love the book of Galatians too. Many of you may have even done Tim Keller's study on the book of Galatians. Many of you have probably taught Galatians. And you might be thinking, you know, I know this, so I'm just going to, you know, tune out. But I wonder if that was the same problem the Galatians were having. Familiarity with the gospel. You see, Paul wasn't, in this letter, calling them to something new or special, like the graduate school of the Christian life. He was calling them back to the basics, back to this message that began in the garden, that was proclaimed to Abraham, which you've been talking about, which lifted up Christ in the cross, and our only source of hope today. So this morning, I'm asking you to, with me, battle this familiarity, battle this, this boundary so that we can really get into the heart 
of the gospel here. Martin Luther said, The little book of Galatians is my letter. I have betrothed myself to it. It is my wife. I'm not sure what Katerina thought about that, his actual wife, but um, I hope that we too fall in love a little bit, not just with the book of Galatians, but with the gospel that it proclaims. And that's my prayer for us this morning as we go into this. And the first thing we're going to see here is that we are foolish. Sorry to start with the, the bad news. That we are foolish, but God is faithful. Let's get a little bit of, of background here before we jump into Galatians 3. There's some debate over who exactly these Galatians were that Paul was writing to. We'll go with the, the uh, theory that has the most weight behind it, that these were the southern churches in the province of Galatia and the Roman Empire. And these were the churches that Paul visited on his first missionary journey. These are people that were precious and personal to Paul. These are people that heard the gospel for the first time from his lips. In the first two places he went, Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium, he was actually forced to flee because the Jews got jealous that the Gentiles were being brought in. But Paul was faithful. These were the places where Paul heard the call to turn fully to the Gentiles first. These were the places where Paul gave his first recorded Gentile sermon, where he doesn't start with the history of the Old Testament. He starts with God, our creator. These people were precious to Paul. These were his people. In Lystra, the Jews from the first two cities came and stirred up the people, and they took Paul, and they stoned him, and it said they left him for dead. We're not 100% sure if he was almost dead or actually dead, but in one of the coolest parts of Acts, I love this part as a teenager, Paul gets back up and comes back into the city the next morning. Hey, I'm back. <laughs> this, this place was close to Paul's heart. So here he is away from Galatia, and he hears the news that these people called the Judaizers, these Jews that were following behind, were coming and saying, you guys got the gospel from Paul. I've got something else for you. You see, it's not enough just to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died and that he forgave your sins. You also need to follow the customs. You need to live like a Jew. You need to be circumcised. Imagine how Paul felt when he heard this. These precious people to him turning away from the message they had heard from his own lips. And so Paul gets out his pen and he writes the book of Galatians. And he says, these people are not teaching the gospel. They're teaching a distortion of the gospel, another gospel. And he's pleading with them not to go that way. At the point we're jumping in in Galatians is the point where Paul is turning from his introduction and his explanation of his own experience from his personal life and he's going right at their hearts. Because what he says here is at the heart of the gospel. So let's look together at Galatians 3. I'm going to read the first five verses. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul is really letting them have it here. Kind of reminds me of the book of Job. I know you guys have studied that, where at the end, God says, okay, Job, stand up like a man, let me question you. 
Paul is bringing the questions here to them. And he's using a rhetorical style, which you see all throughout Paul's writings. And he calls them foolish and bewitched. Now, both of those words are connected to the mind. He's saying, you're kind of muddy-minded. You kind of, someone's pulled a haze over your eyes. Are you thinking straight? Maybe in the New Revised Street Version, Paul would say, Galatians, what are you smoking? Can I say that here, Cameron? I didn't ask you ahead of time. If it's out there now, we got to go with it. Okay. He's like, what has gotten into your mind that you can be, you can go after this teaching that you're hearing? Abandoning the core of Paul's message, the heart of the gospel that Paul focused at the expense of all else. Jesus Christ and him crucified and lifted up. And Paul knew that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified because he was the one who painted the picture. He was the one who lifted up Christ before their eyes. Remember Paul said, I chose among you to only lift up Christ. That's what he did with the Galatians. He knew that they saw Christ in his glory and who he was on the cross. And now they're bewitched. They're wandering away from the truth. And so Paul responds, as he often does, with a series of questions. Let's look at these questions. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Here Paul is referring to the initial work of the Spirit in the lives of the Galatians. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were children of wrath, right? We couldn't hear God, much less choose God, right? But what happened? But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus. He sent his Spirit into our hearts. He called out to us through the Spirit. He regenerated us. He awoke, awoke in us. He gave us ears to hear and eyes to see so that we could say, yes, I believe. And Paul is calling out to them saying, remember that, Galatians? Remember when your relationship with God started through the Spirit? Let me ask you a question, Galatians. Did you do that or did God do that? Remember when you were dead and then suddenly you were alive? Was that because you're such a good person and you follow the law? Or because God was working in your heart through the spirit that we sang about just moments ago? And this question of the spirit of the law is really important for these Gentiles, right? Do you remember when Peter and Acts went to Cornelius' house? Now God had to send him three sheets of animals to get him to go, right? But he went to this Gentile's house. He's sitting in this house with Cornelius and his people. And what is he doing? Publicly portraying Jesus Christ as crucified, right? Lifting Christ up, explaining the gospel. And there's Cornelius. What is he doing? He's sitting and he's listening. The law is far from his mind. He's not even thinking about circumcision or any Jewish customs. He's listening to Jesus Christ being lifted up. And then what happens? The Spirit starts his work. And hearts are changed. Ears are open. They believe. And then what does Peter say when he goes back to the other apostles and the other leaders of the church? He said, here's the proof that God is bringing the Gentiles in. The Spirit changed them. The Spirit came upon them. Remember when you were changed? Remember when God opened your eyes and your heart to see? Was that you or was that God? Well, Paul keeps going with his questions. He says next, 
Um, we're in verse 3 now. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So Paul is moving from this initial work of the Spirit, bringing us from death to life, and he's moving on to this process of sanctification, how we begin to grow in Christ. And he's saying, you started with the Spirit, are you now going to do it in the flesh? Now there's a, a business consultant named Marshall Goldsmith, and he can be your personal business consultant for only $250,000. Or you can buy his book, which is called What Got You Here Won't Get You There, subtitled How Successful People Become Even More Successful. And the idea behind this book is that, okay, you're a successful business person, but to get to the top, you have to change what you're doing, do something different, do something else to get to the top of the business ladder. Now, while this might be true in your firm, and while he has a lot of good advice about introspection and understanding yourself better, when we apply this to the gospel, it is a lie. This is the flesh speaking. What got you here is not going to get you there. You need something else. Oh, I know what it is. Here's the law. Here's circumcision. Here's the customs. But with the gospel, what got you here is what will get you there. I remember being 15 years old, lying on my bed in my room, I think it was January 15th, so around this time, having grown up in a PCA church my whole life, hearing the gospel preached Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Friday night missions conference, we did Faith Promise too, we would have the weekend mission conference every year, and not having a relationship with God. I knew the answer to every Sunday school question, I believed the gospel, I could I had shared the gospel with other people, but I had put a wall up and not let God into my heart. I was scared if I gave full control over my life to God, he would make me move to Africa, live in a hut, and marry an ugly woman. That was pretty much what it is. Now, I did have to move overseas, but I live in a house and I have a beautiful wife. So, you know. Uh, but I was like, God, I believe in actually everything you're saying, but let's just keep it friendly. <laughs> right? But lying on my bed, I was broken. This guy gave me a picture of eternity and what it's like to spend eternity with him or without him. And God moved my heart. The Spirit worked in my heart and I said, God, you can send me wherever you want to send me. I'll do whatever you want. I'll go wherever you want. If you'll just have me in my brokenness and my sinfulness and you will forgive me through your son. And the Spirit began to work in my life and I saw a change in my life because of that brokenness and humility before God. But I have to be honest with you, now 23 years later, there are times when these thoughts creep in my mind. You know, God, I think I can see why you chose me. You know, God, you're pretty lucky to have me on your team. I'm a pretty swell guy. I know that's probably not good to admit that in church, or maybe church is the place you're supposed to admit that, right? And the the grace and and the brokenness and humility that it accompanies, begins to fade. And beginning with the Spirit, I start to say, you know, what's this level two Christianity? How can I find the next thing to get me to the next level? But how foolish, let me use Paul's word, how bewitched we are to say, it's okay, God, I've got it from here. You've done so much for me so far, take a break, I got it from here. 
Because we don't graduate from the gospel. There is no spirit 2.0. There's brokenness at the foot of the cross. There's a radical dependency on God's power through his spirit and the healing power of Christ's blood for sinners. That's what got us here. And guess what? That's what's going to get us there as we receive it from him. So Paul says, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? And he continues with his questioning. Now Paul moves on to talk about some of the things that these Galatians have experienced. He says, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? He's saying, guys, many of you were kicked out of your homes. You were rejected by your community. Some of you were beaten and put in jail. Was all that in vain to turn your back on it? And by the way, this is what many of my friends in Bosnia experience when they come to Christ. Rejection from their family, rejection from their community, because they're saying, I'm leaving my national identity to identify with Christ. And even more sadly, I've seen some go through that and then turn their back on the gospel. And then Paul says, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's saying, okay, you've experienced these bad things, but you've also experienced these good things, right? Miracles change lives, fruit. Where does all this fruit in your Christian life come from? Is it because you were more faithful, because you worked harder, because you were more holy, because you followed the law better than other people? You see, there's this drift that happens when we begin to associate the free blessings of God with our own efforts. I don't know if you felt it in your own life. I have in mine. God blesses us freely of his own grace and then later on we say, yeah, that was because of me in our hearts. It's like a billionaire claiming to be a self-made man. I only had 20 million to start with and I made it all myself. Pulled myself up by the bootstraps, right? But what does Jesus say in John 15? I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But remain in me, and you will bear much fruit. What does Paul say in Galatians 2, just a little bit above here in the chapter? I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of Man who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is the freedom of the gospel that Christ is producing the supernatural life through me. That I'm not on the hook to produce the fruit, to bring about the miracles. This is what freedom is. And the opposite of freedom is what? Slavery. This is why Paul says in, five, in Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Because once you begin to drift and think these fruits in my life are because of me, because I worked harder, because I prayed more, because I read my Bible more, because I'm such a swell guy, you bring the chains of slavery on your back to maintain that. And it's like being pressed down. Luther said this in his commentary on Galatians, the law bows a person down. Have you felt that? Have you felt that? The law bows a person down. It takes the gospel and the preaching of faith in Christ to raise 
and save a person. So what are the areas in your life maybe that you're drifting? And you're starting to think, starting to take the weight off of Christ and what he has done and put it on your own shoulder. You're starting to grab the chains and put them on. What are those areas in your life where you're taking responsibility to, in your own effort, be sanctified? Paul says, this is Christ at the beginning. This is Christ in the middle. And this is Christ at the end. Because what got us here, that's what's going to get us there. So while the Judaizers are saying, more law, more custom, more circumcision, Paul is saying, hearing with faith. You see it here multiple times. You see it in in verse 2 and verse 5. And he gives his prime example, someone who you're familiar with from the last three weeks, Abraham. And he says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Think of all the good things that Abraham did in his life. You know his story now, right? He left his home. He left his family. He left his life to follow God, to go to a place he had never been, among a people he did not know who spoke a language that he did not speak. And God said, oh, by the way, they're a godless people. How would you think about someone who does that? What else did he do? He was willing to offer his own son, his precious son, up on an altar if God asked him to. And what does it say here? Did God use any of that to count it as righteousness for him? This is mind-blowing to me. God doesn't say, because you're so faithful to leave your home, because you're willing to give up your only son. He says, he believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Not on the basis of all the good things he's done, not on his sweat and tears, but on the fact that he heard and believed. In your bulletin, you have this quote from Luther. He says, that Abraham submitted to circumcision at the command of God, that he was endowed with an excellent virtues, that he obeyed God in all things, was certainly admirable of him. To follow the example of Christ, to love one's neighbor, to do good to them, to persecute you, to pray for one's enemies patiently, to bear the ingratitude of those who return evil for good, it's certainly praiseworthy. But praiseworthy or not, such virtues do not acquit us before God. It takes more than that to make us righteous before God. We need Christ himself, not his example, to save us. We need a redeeming, not an exemplary Christ to save us. Paul here is speaking of the redeeming Christ and the believing Abraham, not the model Christ or the sweating Abraham. Man, that cuts to my heart. So many times I'm the sweating Josh, just trying to get it done. But that's not what I need. So Paul moves on and he digs in more deeply into this story of Abraham in verses 7 through 9. I'll read those for you real quickly. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. There's probably some ways in which Paul is echoing or countering the argument of the Judaizers here. Because they're coming along and they're saying, okay, you've got the gospel, but to be a true son of Abraham, you have to this, this, and this, right? So Paul is saying, okay, let's talk about this. 
What does it mean to be a true son of Abraham? Now, this is something we see elsewhere in the Bible. Remember Jesus talking to the Pharisees in the interaction when they start off praising him and they end up wanting to kill him and throw stones at him? The argument was over who is the real son of Abraham. They said, how can you talk to us like that? We're children of Abraham. Look at our obedience. Look at circumcision. Look at the law that we follow. We're the children of Abraham. And what did God say to them? No, you're children of Satan. Because a true son of Abraham is not one who's marked by their holiness or their ability to follow the law or obey all the rules or their circumcision, but by those who hear with faith. To be a son of Abraham is to be connected with this covenant thread that Cameron's been pulling at these last few weeks that starts in the garden and goes through Genesis 12, 15, and 17 and leads to the cross. It's to be connected to God's sovereign work over all of history. It's to be a part of God's family. So here we have a battle over who really is a son of Abraham. Now, I mentioned earlier that in Sarajevo, the students I work with are about 80 or 90% Muslim. And you know that Muslims also claim to be descended from Abraham, except through the line of Ishmael instead of Isaac. And so there's many weird occasions where you're sitting over coffee and you're talking about Abraham sacrificing his son, and you realize they're thinking Ishmael when you're talking about Isaac. And Ishmael represents that part of Abraham's life when he really wasn't living up to the title man of faith, right? He got impatient. He was tired of waiting for God to bring the son. So he was going to take matters into his own hands, and he took Hagar, and he had a child uh, through her, and ironically named him Ishmael, which means God hears. Paul takes up this idea in the next chapter of of, uh, Galatians when he talks about Ishmael as the son of the slave woman and Isaac the son of the free woman. And he says, Ishmael represents the flesh and uh, Isaac represents the promise. Now, I've brought hundreds of people over to Bosnia in my years there. And whenever there's a summer trip, there's always one guy who comes back for our first time on campus and says something like this. Those Muslims are crazy. Do you know what those Muslims believe? They're crazy people. I mean, all the stuff they're saying. And at this point, I know... For him to have an effective summer, we've got to deal with this right now. So usually the conversation goes something like this. Okay, tell me, what what do Muslims believe? We work it out. Muslims believe that God is holy and separate, but he's also gracious and forgiving. They believe that we need to, to be good and to do good things and avoid bad things in order to get to God. They believe that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And it's starting to dawn on him. It's like, is that very crazy? Now, what do we believe? We believe that God, who is three but one, can you explain that for me, please? And then became man and came down and lived on earth, but he was still God in heaven reigning on his throne, and who lived and died on a cross. God died on a cross, then went into the grave, but then he came back up out of the grave so that we could be saved. Now, who sounds crazy? (laughs) There's something inherently reasonable about Islam. You see, if you take Christianity and you take away the cross, and you take away the spirit, what do you have? Islam. So usually at this point, they're starting to, to catch on, which is what I'm going, that, that when I'm sitting down with a Muslim student, and I'm sitting there thinking, these people are crazy, we're not going to get anywhere. 
But you know what opens it up and changes it for you? When you realize that this son of Ishmael is also in my heart too, in my flesh. This longing to be good enough to deserve God's pleasure. This longing to be able to stand before God and say, I did it. This longing to say, well, at least I'm better than him. That's my flesh. That's the son of Ishmael in my flesh. And when I can see that, I can sit across and say, you know this gospel that sounds so crazy? Well, it may sound crazy, but it also happens to be true. And it's the only hope we have in the entire universe. And so, as I look at this, the problem with the Galatians, I see the depth of my own foolishness, but I also see the reach of God's faithfulness. Look at verse 8. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. See, the problem the Judaizers had was not that they had too big of a picture of God, which is what they probably would claim, right? Be more holy and more righteous before God. I'm sure they thought they were taking God more seriously, demanding this holy obedience to the law. The problem is that their picture of God was too small. See, they saw a nation, and God saw the nations. They saw a people, and God saw all the peoples of the earth. But Abraham had different eyes. He had eyes of faith, and he saw the promise ahead of time. Jesus declared in John 8, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. Why was Abraham glad? Because the gospel is good news. The gospel says, you can have the blessing of God, not on the basis of your good work and in spite of the bad things you do. The gospel says you can have the blessing of God not on the basis of your good work and in spite of your failure and bad deeds. Think of all the bad things that Abraham did. We talked about the good things he did. What about the bad things he did, right? He lied about Sarah being his wife twice. Maybe it doesn't seem like a big deal. I know my wife would be offended by it. Uh, but he also threatened the promise of the blessing, right? If she's off living with the king, how is, are they going to have a child together for the promise? He took Hagar and produced a child with her and then afterwards treated her and him badly for it. But out of all these bad things he did, he wasn't barred from righteousness on the basis of these failures. He was declared righteous because he believed. This is the faithfulness of God. God says, I promise and I always keep my promises. And Abraham believed, I believe you keep your promises. And because of this, in verse 9, we can believe this to be true. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This to me is mind-blowing. Do you realize that if you're in Christ, when God looks at you, he sees a man or woman of faith? Right? Look at what Abraham did. There were moments where he did not look like a man of faith, but God looked and he said, there's my man of faith there. And we have to let that sink in, that when God sees me, he says, there is Josh, a man of faith. There's Sarah, a woman of faith. There's John, a man of faith. There's Aaron, a woman of faith. Because we're in Christ, that's how he sees us.
So finally, as we come to the end of this, this section, one final question to look at, that's how is God able to give us these blessings when really we know what we deserve? How does this work out? And that's what Paul is dealing with here. And we see that we don't have to earn the blessing because he bore the curse. Let's look at chapter 3, 10 through 12. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Paul here is saying, listen guys, there's blessing and there's curse. And he's very intentionally quoting Deuteronomy, Habakkuk, Leviticus, and saying this is all through the Bible, but there's blessing and there's curse, okay? Remember when Abraham had to cut the animals in half and they split them, and while he was sleeping, not doing anything, God passed through? My friends, that's blessing. You want curse? Then get up and walk through those pieces, and if you don't keep the covenant, you will be cut in two. He said, my friends, there's blessing. Hearing with faith. Resting on what God has done for you, not trying to produce. But if you want curse and you want to go with the law, you better keep every single uh, jot and tittle, every single period, comma, and note of it. Because if you're not perfect, you'll bear the curse. You see, he said there's blessing over here and it's God ordained and it's God sustained and it's God completed. He starts at Christ, beginning, middle, end, It's his promise. It's his plan. Or we have curse over here, which you have to make happen, which you have to keep going, and which you have to finish. See, the curse is like someone hands you a ladder, and they say, climb to God. This is what the Judaizers were doing for the Galatians. They give you a ladder and say, climb to God. And so you want to be with God, so you start climbing. You know, hand over foot at the beginning. You're like, I'm doing it. I'm doing it, you know? And then after a while, you start to get tired and you look up the ladder and there's no end to the ladder. And you just keep climbing. There's sometimes you have good days where you're climbing better than other days and you're making some ground, you're feeling good about yourself. Maybe you're looking back at your neighbor over here who's also climbing the ladder. You're like, kill that guy. It's doing great. And you're feeling good about yourself. Maybe you get a little proud, which maybe you miss a rung and you fall back a little bit, right? But there's other days where you look up and it seems like everybody's above you. And you're like, do I really want to keep climbing this ladder? And you spend, many people spend their whole life climbing the ladder. But here's what the blessing is. Jesus, uh, Paul, through the gospel, comes along, through Galatians, preaching the gospel, comes along, he says, can I borrow your ladder for a minute? And he takes it from you. And he lays it down. And then as you look at that ladder, you realize... Wait a second. That's not a ladder. That's a train track. You start following the train track all the way down, and it leads you straight to the cross. You see, the law was given to us to be a railroad track leading straight to Jesus, and we try to rip it up out of the ground and climb our way up to God, and we wonder why we're so tired and exhausted so often. But Paul so beautifully is saying here, 
You want to climb that ladder? There's only curse. But in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Remember the Christ that I clearly portrayed as crucified? That's where you need to go. Follow the track to him. This is such a beautiful picture. Remember in uh, Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham. It's one of their conversations and he lifts Abraham's eyes up to the stars. He says, Abraham, my promise is like these stars. Children promise to you more than the stars. And there's, there's something there that when Abraham looked at the stars, he wasn't just looking to his, the fact that he would have a kid and his kid will have two kids and et cetera. He was looking forward to God's promise. And when he looked up at the stars, he really was looking forward to Christ and what he would do on the cross. And so the call for us today is to like Abraham to lift up our eyes. Now we're not lifting up our eyes at the stars, we're lifting up our eyes to Jesus Christ, who though he was God became man, and though he was rich became poor, and though he had everything, he gave up everything to live among us. Because he is the only one that can climb the ladder. And he not only climbed the ladder perfectly, he climbed the cross and paid what we should have paid. He paid it even though he didn't have to for us. And when we lift our eyes up to him and take it off of ourselves and how we're doing, we lift it up to him, what we find is blessing and grace and forgiveness. This, my friends, is the gospel. This is good news. This is something that's worth celebrating, that's worth singing about, that's worth telling our friends about, right? This is the only hope for all the nations. And because of this, we can hear and receive this verse 14 almost as a blessing over us. Almost, we can claim this truth that God has, has made evident to us in this book. It says in verse 14, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham has come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's pray together.